Well, ready or not, we're going to dive into the book of Hebrews amongst uh, all the hissing over there of the radiators. <laughs> uh, I hope you're warm anyway. Um, grab a hold of God's Word uh, and turn to Hebrews chapter 12, if you will. And we are uh, going to be examining uh, verses 14 to 17 today. It's just really part of a longer uh, um, exhortation that the writer gives, and I'm excited to begin that with you this morning. I think it's safe to say that none of us is a stranger to discouragement, that terrible feeling of defeat. It's defined, really, by a loss of confidence and enthusiasm in one's direction. Now, whether we're talking about a job or the upkeep of our home and possessions, self-care and physical health, or even the things that we genuinely love and enjoy working at, hobby, playing an instrument, building something, cultivating a garden. It is this loss of confidence in those things, uh, a, a, a loss of enthusiasm in, in a particular direction, that we were going in so well and even enjoyed and loved going in that direction. As to why this happens, well, there are a number of reasons, a number of variables that go into the mix. Could be a number of things, or one thing, or a combination of things, loss of funds, being overworked, battling illness, being fatigued, death of a loved one is a, is a biggie, or a pandemic, such as we've known now for two years. Fear, worry, all of these things play a big part in contributing to discouragement, and others, of course. We cannot give an exhaustive list here. And I think it's also safe to say that it's not a good thing to be discouraged. And I would argue that it's even worse when Christians are. I'm sure somebody is going to say, well, why is that? Christians are people too, aren't they? Yes, Christians are people but not all people are Christians and have what Christians have. Christians really never have a good reason to be discouraged or to lose confidence in their walk in Christ or for their spiritual enthusiasm to wane. Really no good reason at all. I might stand alone in that in a lot of circles, but it's true. For example, we, we've been saved, really, from God's wrath. That's the worst that could possibly happen to us. We've been given heaven, our great eternal inheritance. We've been outfitted with, a, with all we need to walk obediently before the Lord, and we have his pleasure and approval. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit to aid us in our sanctification, the partnership of Jesus and the Spirit in interceding on our behalf as we pray. Jesus himself prayed for us during his earthly ministry that we would all be one, we would be unified, and Jesus never prays prayers that are, that are not, not answered. We have spiritual armor, spiritual weaponry, an abundance of wisdom for the asking. We belong to a body and have resources there for our spiritual care, for the fight of faith. Even trials that we endure are tailor-made by a good sovereign for our good. And Jesus promises to answer all our prayers in the way that we pray them in his name. And if he answers them differently 
from what we've asked, well, we can be sure that his answer is even better. And if we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, no matter how severe, that's pleasing in God's sight. Do I, do I need to continue or have I made my case? We never have any good reason to lose our confidence in the fight and be discouraged. That's why I say when Christians get discouraged, it's really a terrible thing. It's worse for us than for anybody else. When our confidence is weakened, when we lose our enthusiasm, we slow down in the race of faith, we become susceptible to sinful thoughts and temptations. And our ministry suffers too. Whether we're parents, spouses, missionaries, full-time Christian workers, part-time Christian workers, pastors, however you define your ministry biblically, our witness gets damaged. So many things happen that are not good when we are discouraged. Now, God knows that we become discouraged to varying degrees throughout our Christian walk. And that it'll have negative effects on our spiritual race. So, He's given us plenty of incentives to fend it off, or should we give into it? To rise above it. Plenty. Just a short list here. For example, the fact that God is for us is one great incentive. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He's given us prayer as another incentive. Now Jesus was telling them in a parable to show them that that at all times they ought to pray and not become discouraged. He gives us faithful servants to minister to us, 2 Corinthians 7, 6. But God, who comforts the discouraged, comforted us by the arrival of Titus. The promise that we will reap what we sow in due time is yet another incentive. Let us not become discouraged, Galatians 6, 9, in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not become weary. Now, in addition to this, there are numerous New Testament commands to actually encourage one another in the faith. So important is this holy endeavor that God even gives it to some as a spiritual gift. Now, we should never underestimate the importance of a ministry of encouragement. Never underestimate encouraging another believer. Now, we're in Hebrews chapter 12 this morning, and we embark on an examination of the last of the writer's pastoral exhortations. He gives, of course, a handful so far, strategically placed throughout this letter. And this one begins in verse 12 of chapter 12, and it goes right through the rest of the chapter and into the first half of chapter 13. So we have a lot of exhortation to cover here. And we know that this is the start of his last push to get them to snap out of their spiritual lethargy. And it's all about encouragement, how we can be encouraged, how we can stay encouraged, and how we can encourage each other continually. That's what this is all about in these few verses. Verse 12 begins with, therefore, I want you to notice this before we get into our our, um, <clears throat> our truths here of the of the uh, text begins with therefore, which in this context obviously grounds what the writer is going to say on what he has already taught, specifically about divine chastening. 
but also from the entire letter up to this point. Essentially, the writer says, on the basis of everything that I have argued up to this point, and especially that bit about God's discipline, I'm going now to get practical with you. You need to take what I have said, and you need to act on it. If you want to reverse this drift and find your way back to theological center and run well the Christian race, you have to apply what I've said, or else you live your life in vain and risk unbelieve, an unbelieving heart that will keep you out of the better country. That's what he says, in essence. And I want you to see that the verbs that follow immediately after therefore and down through to verse 17, they put the responsibility of being encouraged and encouraging squarely on the shoulders of every believer. Here they are. Strengthen. Make straight. Make every effort. See to it. See that. Every Christian is to take this precious teaching and he and she is to put feet to it. Make it practical. Work it out in life. You can see there's no passive obedience going on here. Not with these action words, right? No passive obedience. No idea of whatsoever of letting go and letting God do the work, as it has been said in certain Christian circles. There is no support whatsoever for coasting in the Christian life. God calls us to run like Olympic runners, to fight like expert boxers, to struggle and overcome spiritual skirmishes like warriors, beating down the lusts of the flesh, wielding the supernatural weapon of the word to topple the secular and satanic ideological fortresses that entomb unbelievers, and then take their thoughts captive to Christ. Christianity is a hands-on faith, an active and aggressive warring for the king in the better country. We are in a position, then, to hear the writer himself Tell us how we're to apply the truth of Hebrews chapters 1 to 12 that we have spent almost two years learning. It's best to think of each of them, I think, as God-given responsibilities to stay strong and to finish strong. Four responsibilities, at least today, we'll see more later, to stay strong and to finish strong. Here they are. Number one, strengthen others by staying the course. Strengthen others by staying the course. Verses 12 and 13. He says, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is impaired may not be dislocated but rather healed. A lot of figurative language here that we have to unpack. What's this all about? Well, it's all about living out what God has called you to do in your Christian life in, the way, in a way that not only keeps you strong in the Christian life, but incentivizes other Christians to stay strong and finish strong as well. Twofold kind of idea here. Let me break it down for you. First of all, the exhortation here is to strengthen the hands that are weak. Strengthen the hands. This was a well-known figure of speech in the ancient world. And we find it in Old Testament context where God's people overcome, or overcome rather, uh, or, or 
almost overcome by their enemies. Their enemies attempt to discourage them in their work for God. Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 9 is one of them. Nehemiah 6 9. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they'll become discouraged with the work and it will, it will not be done. But now God strengthens my hands, Nehemiah says. Hands in this passage are figurative. It's shorthand for work, because we work with our hands. And while there were those who tried to discourage the returning exiles from their work of re rebuilding God's temple, God prevailed in them so that their work would not slow down. Here's another reference. It's in Jeremiah 23, verse 14. Also among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing, God says, the committing of adultery and walking in deceit. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me like Sodom and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. Here, strengthening the hands of evildoers means that unrighteous prophets in Israel supported the agenda of the evildoers and encouraged them in their work. So hands refer to someone's progress or work for sure. But there is another element that I don't want you to miss. Another element. I want to point out, in addition, that this figure also incorporates the spirit of an individual, your attitude. Usually Old Testament, the Old Testament portrays the works uh, or the outer actions of an individual and the inner thoughts of an individual with heart and hands. Heart for our spirit and thinking and hands for our work. Psalm 24 verse 3 refers to clean hands and a pure heart. And that means that one whose heart is right will produce acts of righteousness. Now, in our case, when someone's hands are weak, it means that the work is faltering, it's slowing down, it's waning. And since we know that whatever we produce with our hands is a matter first born in our hearts, the implication is that one's spirit has been defeated, it's been discouraged. This is clear from the Nehemiah passage that I just read in the reference to the enemy trying to cause fear in the returning exiles. Fear speaks to the realm of the heart. In the same way, the Jeremiah reference to adultery speaks to sensuality and lusts, again, belonging to the realm of the heart. So know this. If we're discouraged in our work, it's because we're discouraged first in our hearts. And the lack of enthusiasm in our heart for the work will show our physical, the, the physical progress slowing down. One's attitude and work go together. One causes the other. Now the writer was familiar also with a fuller expression. It's feeble hands and weak knees. It's, it's a much larger expression, and it really carries the same idea. A defeated spirit produces a lack of enthusiasm for the work. And his audience would have known this fuller expression, too. So as is his habit, he draws upon an Old Testament passage 
that uses this terminology to talk to them about overcoming this discouragement in their lives, both in their spirit as well as in their work. And that would be Isaiah 50, uh, 35, rather, verse 3. Isaiah says, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to the fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear, your God will come to save you. I want you to notice the reference to fearful hearts. Do you see that? This passage speaks of those who have lost their enthusiasm because of fear. So they don't walk confidently. They don't progress. The prophet says, be strong in your faith in God. This is a heart matter, faith, what we believe, what we trust. And when you do, he will come to your rescue. So we find weak hands and feeble knees here in Isaiah. It's also in Job. Job chapter 4, verse 3, which predates Isaiah. In this context, Eliphaz confronts the weakened Job. He says this, Think how you have instructed many, Job, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumble, and you have strengthened faltering knees. But now, trouble comes to you, and you're discouraged. It strikes you, and you're dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways, your hope? In other words, you were the guy who encouraged others who were defeated in their spirit and discouraged in their work. You encouraged them with your piety, but now you're in need of encouragement, and you refuse to practice what you preach. That's kind of the essence of that. Well, in verse 12, in our passage, Hebrews 12, verse 12, the writer incorporates this figure, this figure of speech for discouragement, the the weak hands and the feeble knees, into his race illustration. His audience, like Olympic runners who grow weary in long-distance race, were showing signs of slowing down because their fear of persecution for the faith. Their hands no longer swung aggressively back and forth to keep time for their stride, but they were drooping by their side, which is a sure sign that they weren't pushing themselves toward the finish line. You know, the runner's hands are important to his running. Any of you who run will know this. You cannot run well and swiftly with your hands down by your sides. It won't work. The swinging motion of the hands push you through your stride. And the faster you swing your hands back and forth, the faster your stride. The way runners control their strides is through their hands. A discouraged and worn runner whose hands are drooping will eventually become wobbly in his knees. Why is that? Well, he's no longer pushing out his legs in a calculated stride. Rather, he's actually using his legs to slow himself down because he wants to stop. And when the legs bear the weight of his body that is magnified by the forward motion, it makes the knees wobble and puts them in danger of buckling. So the entire image here speaks of a discouraged athlete who gives up. So the exhortation is certainly to every Christian to strengthen himself or herself in the race. Trust the promises of God's future blessing, overcome your fears, and pick up the pace, is the idea. 
That's not the end of it. It makes absolute sense that each Christian is to take this exhortation to heart personally. Yes. The greater application is for each Christian to take courage so that he or she might then go on to strengthen other Christians who show signs of giving up. How can we be sure of this interpretation? Well, there are several indications. Several indications. One is that this verse doesn't specifically say your hands and your knees, but rather the hands and the knees, which allows the idea that the writer is pointing the whole entire congregation to those in the congregation that need help. Strengthen the knees over there. Strengthen the hands over there. Another is that the Isaiah passage quoted here is mainly a charge to the nation, not to certain individuals in the nation. Those who can take comfort in God's promise of salvation should then go on to strengthen others in the nation who are so overcome with fear that they're faltering. And this is exactly what the writer himself is doing in this drifting congregation. Here's a third indication. The next part of the writer's exhortation makes the best sense when we understand Understand it to be Christians strengthening other Christians after, of course, they've strengthened themselves. It says, make straight paths for your feet so that then the limb which is impaired may not be dislocated but rather healed. And in here we see this twofold application. You're going to strengthen your, straighten your paths so then you can go on to help the limb which is impaired not be further dislocated, but rather healed. All right, let's explain this. The reference to paths for the feet translates a, a word in Greek that actually refers to a wheel track. You know, uh, roads in the ancient world were not like our roads, um, and uh, they, uh, they needed um, certain tracks to... To, uh, for, for people to travel with uh, more ease, um, a wheel track. Uh, and uh, a wheel track is uh, a track that actually has been, of course, paved through the ground by, by a wheel. Uh, it's a well-worn path. We find these in the woods behind our farm, actually. Small trails or footpaths created uh, probably 100 years ago by the wheel of a tractor or a dump truck. After repeated runs, it plows a smooth way through the heavy underbrush of the forest. And it makes absolute sense that years later, people would actually use these as trails. Why wouldn't you? It makes hiking through the forest much easier when someone else has blazed the trail for you. Well, it makes hiking enjoyable. The hiker keeps up his enthusiasm. He doesn't have to wade through all of the, the thorns and, and things like that. It's the same idea as when you follow someone across a field after a heavy snowstorm. You step in the same footsteps that have been left for you by the guy in front of you. And it's easier and safer for you to do it that way. Well, in the same way, the writer calls this drifting congregation, each one of them, to get back on track. The narrow way, of course, which Christ himself blazed for them where they can see clearly where to run the course. And when you run well, then those who are discouraged can follow you 
They can imitate your strides. They can step where you step. They learn how to handle various terrain and elevations much better by watching you, by imitating your faith. Verse 2 introduces a purpose clause and tells us why we are to run this way. Notice, so that the limb which is impaired may not be dislocated, but rather healed. That's why we're to run well, for the sake of others. Runners who have injured themselves because they strayed off the track need to get back on the trail that is marked out for them so they can be sure to do no, more, no further damage to themselves or twist their ankle or dislocate it. I think it makes the most sense of the imagery here to see it as an illustration of those in the body who are weak and discouraged. Those are the limbs. Those are the limbs that have been hurt because they veered off. And those in the church who are languishing in their faith and feeling defeated, these limbs which, which the writer speaks of, they are impaired to some degree. And so they don't become, so that they don't become further dislocated, that is, fall out of joint with the body, they need encouragement that will heal them. Apostle Paul and Barnabas encouraged in this very way after blazing the mission trail. They then returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. He said, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And there's no doubt that he he provided an example of this. This is the way this works. It's that each of us maintain a steady course. We run well. We set an example of perseverance that will help others who are lame and faltering to carry on and, and be restored in the race. Our very own Jay Cruz, who sitting in the back there, as you know, runs various races with obstacles. I've seen him do this. He's very good at it. He invited me to join him one pra uh, on a, one particular race. It was a six-mile race with 36 obstacles. What I appreciated was that rather than comp compete against himself to try and best his previous time, he ran with me. Uh, I, of course, ran much slower. It was a way to keep me enthused as I ran. The idea in our text is of this kind of mutual encouragement by the way we run. And it's the theme throughout the book. The writer expresses it best, I think, in chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful, verse 24. And then let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but by encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So, stay the course and as you do, you will encourage those in the body who are weak, these limbs that need to be restored. Strengthen others by staying the course. That's the first responsibility. Here's the second. Love God by loving others in the way he directs. You want to encourage others to, to stay strong and to finish strong, then 
You want to love God by loving others the way he directs. This is verse 14. This is the next responsibility. And uh, it's in verse 14. It says this, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one sees the Lord. Now, Christians are by nature peacemakers. The stereotype of Christian church meetings carrying on like town meetings and the infighting that goes on all too often in churches doesn't contradict this statement. Christians are by nature peacemakers. It just shows us how desperately we need to strive for peace because Christians are not realizing their potential. The writer here tells us or refers to God as the God of peace in, he will, in chapter 13, verse 20, because God is the God of peace. And Jesus, through his Melchizedekian priesthood, reconciled us to himself. That means he destroyed the enmity between us and God and established peace between us. So as sons of the Father of peace and reconciliation, then, we should be about peacemaking. Now, this verse is not the only place where God tells us to live in peace with everyone, both saved and unsaved. Paul gives nearly the exact command in Romans 12. You'll find also Peter quoting Psalm 34. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And Jesus himself, not surprisingly, commands us to be at peace with one another. This is yet another means of encouraging believers in the race of faith to stay strong and finish strong. And we should really take it to heart. The verse uses the English word pursue. See that there? Pursue. It translates a Greek word that actually means to hunt down a prey. It's a very strong word. Hunt down a prey. We Christians ought to chase after peace as if we are hunting for it, to obtain it. Obviously, the idea is not to just let peace happen. As if to say, oh, it would be so nice to be on speaking terms with my Christian friend Bill again. No, it calls for a deliberate, calculated, strategic move on our part to be at peace with all who are in our circles of life, especially fellow church members. Now, it, it takes two to make a relationship work. I understand that. And then there's only so much that we can do on our side to establish peace. If we're, if we're talking about those who are outside of Christ, we do all we possibly can to build a peaceful relationship. But if our labors go ignored, there's really nothing else we can do except to return good for evil and to pray for those who persecute us. But between Christians, there's much more we can do. Part of our one anothering involves being tenacious about keeping peace between each other. And if that's disturbed by something, well, we need we're obligated actually to, to get to get it straightened out, find out what it is. There are a number of ways that we can do this. Rebuke, repentance, granting forgiveness, being wronged and accepting that, church discipline. We shouldn't take the command to be peacemakers lightly, beloved. God never wants two people in his kingdom at odds with each other. 
Now, we're not responsible for how another Christian reacts, but we are responsible to minister to that other Christian if he reacts sinfully. We are peacemakers. Command to seek peace with each other is also coupled with this command to be holy. And you're thinking, hmm, what an interesting, what an interesting pair of concepts. But when your heart, I'm sorry, when you hear holiness, I want you to think of sanctification. That's what it means, of course, to pursue holiness. It means to pursue our sanctification. It's the process where, with God's help, we conform more to the image of Christ. And we realize and express this holiness that we have in him more and more. The command then, just to clarify, is to pursue our sanctification, which is really our relationship with God as saved individuals. It's this this vertical relationship. The writer has just finished talking about pursuing peace with our brother. That's a horizontal relationship. And that's an expression of love. He addresses now the greater pursuit and the one that makes the former possible, that is to love God, to be like him in our thinking and our actions. And in one breath, the writer refers in practical terms to the two greatest pursuits in the Christian life, love God and love neighbor. A holy man is a man of peace. Jesus mentioned them in one breath as well in his Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, and the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. One who is right with God will strive to be right with others, since that is really one of the most important ways we show love to God, right? Isn't that true? 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar, for he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Paul tells Timothy, pursue peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Peace and holiness. 2 Timothy 2.22 This display of holiness is really a manifestation of what is true of every Christian, and that is that he's holy. And if he doesn't display love for God and for neighbor by cultivating the holiness he has in Christ and being a peacemaker by edification and evangelism, then he doesn't have the holiness of Christ at all. And he shouldn't think that he belongs to God at all either. Without this holiness, the writer says, this Holiness that comes by virtue of our salvation, we cannot live in the presence of a holy God. This is why the gospel is the only hope, really, for any society in the world. The only hope. Reconciliation between a person and God brings reconciliation between people. That's the way it works. Number three, third responsibility. Guard the flock against troublemakers. Guard the flock against troublemakers. Verse 15. We go from peacemakers now to troublemakers. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now coming off the heels of verse 16, 
we're to under, uh, verse 14 rather, we're to understand that the grace of God as salvation in, is salvation in this context, and that falling short of it is a reference really to an apostate among the flock. And the writer's already referenced apostates in his epistle. We have chapter 6, we have chapter 10. So we're understanding the grace of God as being salvation, and we're understanding the falling short of the grace of God here to be an, an, an apostasy, pure and simple. Now the writer may have had Deuteronomy 29, 17 in mind when he refers to this root of bitterness. In, in this Old Testament passage, it speaks of those whose heart turns away from the Lord. That's a, an apostasy. And he talks about it as being, quote, a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood, end quote. That would be within the body, within the nation of Israel. So we cannot always know, then, who this apostate is who will eventually bear a poisonous fruit in the body. We don't know always uh, or with any kind of precision because counterfeit faith looks so real. But there is a point. There is a point to which counterfeit Christians will not go. And it's when they face severe persecution for a faith that they don't have or they're held accountable by godly leadership and members. The writer refers here <clears throat> to someone who was running with the pack of believers but fell away. He was not a Christian to begin with. But on his way down, he drags as many people as he can. Why is this? Why does this happen? Is this sort of a case of misery loves company? What is this? Well, all apostates are not troublemakers. Let's be clear on that. It really depends on what kind of apostate is in view. Remember, apostates are of two kinds. We've been arguing this throughout the book. The first kind are those who willingly and knowingly depart from the faith and want absolutely nothing to do with the faith anymore. I'm, I'm not a Christian. Yeah, I used to be. I'm not anymore. I used to go to the church. I don't go to church anymore. Perhaps they've concluded that this Christianity is just not for them. So they move on amicably. It's okay. I have no hard feelings. I'm just not there. Bye. And they go join a cult or something. They don't really leave in a vindictive way. There's no reason. It's the other kind of apostate that's in view here, I believe. Those who depart are orthodoxy but don't realize it. And they think they are Christians. And they want to worship God in their own way. Thank you very much. It's a purely unbiblical way. They, they'll leave the church they attend when it holds them accountable for their actions and admonishes them lovingly to live biblically. And they can become very bitter at leadership for it, thinking that leadership are not understanding of others or they're too narrow in their thinking. Or that the church is not ecumenical enough or permissive enough or loving enough or supporting or supportive enough as, of course, defined by them. At some point, they may be rebuked for spreading heresy, even brought up on church discipline if they had joined the church. And it's here that they do their greatest damage. They give up or leave without a fight. They don't give up, rather, or leave without a fight. They spread lies about leadership. They slander others in the church. They upset the entire congregation. They 
They defile those who listen to them with a sympathetic ear by winning them over to their way of thinking, sucking them into their gossiping, whispering and conspiring together with them in the dark corners of the church. The interest is for themselves and not for the body. They pay no attention to church polity. They violate the bylaws by spinning them and interpreting them the way they want. And this is a characteristic of false believers, especially of those who hold prominent positions in the church. Paul mentions them. Peter mentions them. Jude mentions them. Jesus mentions them in the book of Revelation. They are selfish, greedy. They prey on weak people in the church. A couple of people like this in a church can cause a lot of damage. Jesus talks about a little leaven ruining the entire lump. And Paul describes them as poison that spreads like gangrene. We're going to be encouraging. We want to encourage fellow believers, the weak among us especially, to be strong, to run strong, to finish strong. We have to be about, uh, or we have to be uh, uh, looking about. We have to keep our eyes open and guard the flock against the apostate, against those who cause trouble. Number four, and finally, tolerate no sexually immoral, godless person. Tolerate no sexually immoral, godless person. Verses 16 and 17. See that. No one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. For for a single meal sold his inheritance, his inheritance rights as the the oldest son. And afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. This command seems somewhat random, but it follows logically in the writer's lineup. Apostates, which we've just finished talking about, especially those in influential positions in the church, are often sexually immoral and godless. And they also propagate the same. They propagate the same. Now, before I elaborate on that, some commentators have suggested that the writer here may be using sexual sexual immorality in the, in the same way that James used it in his epistle, chapter 4, verse 4, where James accuses his congregation of being adulteresses. That would be in a spiritual adulteress. And they argue this uh, because they find no mention in the, in the biblical text of Esau ever being sexually immoral. And I think that while spiritual adultery is certainly in the mix, the reference here to sexual immorality is also literal, and I say that for several reasons. First, the reference to godlessness is literal. I'm I'm not sure how it could be used figuratively here. Godlessness, we're godless. Um, Second, Genesis chapter 26, 34 records Esau taking two Hittite women, which is a violation of the covenant and sexually immoral. Verse 35 says that in doing so, Esau caused grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Now, if that's all we had for Esau in the biblical record, it would suffice for sexual immorality. Third, 
Since the writer goes on to give an extended word about Esau, it makes sense that he's using Esau to illustrate both sexual immorality and godlessness. And fourth, sexual immorality and godlessness are characteristics of New Testament apostates in the church, especially those who were leaders in the church. They go together. So coming back to sexual immorality and godlessness, the writer wants us to make a concerted effort to nurture the body and look out for the flock, as the first three truths argue, and we need then to protect the body by exposing these characteristics in anyone who is among us. I say that they are mostly visible in apostate leaders. That would be false teachers. In Peter's second epistle, he warns of such men and that many will follow after their sensuality. Isn't that interesting? Will follow them. Many will follow them. The Greek word for sensuality or translated sensuality refers to unbridled lust excess lasciviousness. He describes further that they have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. And this, for while speaking out arrogant words of no value, they entice by fleshly desires, by indecent behavior. Peter also highlights the fact that they are godless. And that, of course, goes without saying, but He says this, they despise authority, they're like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct, using abusive speech where they have no knowledge, having hearts trained in greed, accursed children, abandoning the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam. You can't get any more godless than that. Apostates don't have the word implanted in them, beloved. Either kind of apostate. So we know that they will be be led by their passions. People are led by their emotions, right? Against reason. (laughs) So many people in our society today are actually led by their feelings against science, against biology. Their God is their appetite, Philippians 3.19. They are visceral. That is, they're they're not reasoning their way through life. It's really on gut gut feelings. They... They're led by ungodly impulses and lust, like Esau was. Notice that in referring to Esau, the writer says that he gave up his birthright for a single meal. Why would he say that? Why would you emphasize that? Well, when you emphasize things like that, it's, it's because you, you, you're trying to make a point here, and, and his point is very clear. The writer emphasizes this in order to show the utter stupidity of those who forsake God's truth and live by their own passions. This guy gave up everything for soup? Verse 17 shows again with the example of Esau how true apostates try to claim the promises of God, but in reality, they cannot obtain them. By their own means. Esau wanted the right of firstborn blessing, and he sought it with maddening tears. And in the end, he couldn't change what he had done, and he was rejected. Apostates can show remorse over their sinful activity, make no mistake, but their sorrow is not a godly one. It doesn't lead to repentance. Rather, it is a worldly sorrow over not 
getting what I want or being found out or being discovered. Let's tolerate no sexual immorality and no godliness, a godlessness rather, in the church. Well, that brings me to a, a concluding word. What have we said so far? We've said that the writer begins his last exhortation in a very clever way. He spurs us on to action on the basis of our doctrine, and then he tells us to do the same with others in the body who may show signs of weakness and drifting. Watch yourselves, and then watch others. Take the plank out of your own eyes so you can take the speck out of somebody else's. Consider not only your own interests, but the interests of others as being more important. Bottom line is that we should rehearse these responsibilities to ourselves if we're going to give proper encouragement to our co-laborers in Christ, for starters. We said strengthen others by staying the course. Love God by loving others in the way he directs. Guard the flock against troublemakers and tolerate no sexual, immoral, godless person. Be strong, finish strong. Father, we thank you for this time together.